Great. Hi, everybody. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York and um, happy to happy to be here. I'm happy to see everybody. Um, so um, tonight we're going to talk about step five, but not um, from the big book, really. We're really going to focus mostly on, on the AA 12 and 12 and what it has to say about step five. Um, and so we've been... Um, you know, we've been sort of following along, right? Sequentially, we start and and step five is the step where now we start um, really telling the truth about ourselves. We we share it with another person. And, you know, I, I think before I kind of zone in on this, I, it's, I, I think it's important for us to note that this is not an independent study. The 12 steps is not something where you can take this text and go off and, and practice it all entirely on, a, on your own. And that there is, there is the all important word we throughout the whole book, because um, in order to have a spiritual experience, in order to have a spiritual awakening, we have to do it in community with other people, cannot be done alone. And specifically, it has to be done with other people who suffer from the same disease as us. That's, that's an essential component. And, you know, there are lots of open meetings where different people have different, um, different addictions and you're able to share, you know, the text of the big book, which is, you know, offers a way of life that's useful for us all. But there is a very important um, piece about step one that really does tell us that we, um, we're different than other people, right? We are like men who have lost their lives, they never grow new ones, and that we have a very specific difference um, in common, right? So we're different from other people and we share that difference here together. So um, step five is, is really important that this is not something that by the time you do it, you have not only cultivated generally a close relationship with a sponsor, because that's oftentimes who's gonna hear it, but close relationships with fellows as well. And that, that's something that we really need to cultivate, I believe, right from the get-go. Um, so what are the promises that are associated with step five? Well, it says, once we've taken the step withholding nothing, we're delighted. So we're gonna be delighted, okay? We can look the world in the eye, we can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. And we may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. So this is where we start having that experience that we keep hearing about. Um, and the feeling, and now here's the great part that step five gives us, is that the feeling that the drink problem or the food problem has disappeared will often come stronger. So more times than not, we get this strong feeling like the problem has disappeared when we do step five. And we feel like we're on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. So we feel a connection, a God, we start to really feel a God consciousness 
a God connection. We feel the food problem is gone. We're not afraid anymore. Um, and we can actually be alone. Like we can actually sit and be alone and not in isolation, alienation, but actually just comfortable with our own company. Um, step five, what does it promise us? One, sobriety. Two, kinship with man. Three, feeling authentically ourselves, feeling like we're, we're truly who we are. Four, forgiveness for ourselves and for others. Five, humility. Six, peace of mind and serenity. And seven, feeling the presence of God, right? Which is really what we're, this whole program is about, to have the feeling of, of the presence of God. So step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wants. And now in the 12 and 12 on page 55, it says, when it comes to ego deflation, few steps are harder to take than five, but scarcely any step is more necessary to long-term sobriety and peace of mind than this one. So yeah, number one, step five gives us sobriety. And at this point, when we do our fifth step, excuse me, we're abstinent, right? We're doing this, we're abstinent, food is down, and it's painfully clear that we will have no long-term recovery unless we have serenity and peace of mind. My inventory for me brought to the front of my mind all my resentments, my fears, my harms, and without step five, without bringing another person into this process, I'm gonna be forever owned by these skeletons. When it's just me alone with them, it's too much. And that denial is busted away, right? Denial gets busted away. And now what happens is I have to live with the awful truth that I blotted out by food and behaviors. So now I'm like looking at this truth that I've used food to quiet. And now here it is, it's all right here. So, you know, in recovery, I came to see how I was cut off from my honest self. That was my experience. I, I was not, I was cut off from who I was. I was cut off from God's purpose for me and from my fellow man. You know, addicts live in isolation, often right in the middle of a family and right in the middle of a community. They live with this feeling of isolation. Um, you know, and I often show pictures, when I show my pictures in the beginning, there's a particular photo that I show with me and my sisters and my sister-in-laws. And I just remember feeling a very certain way that day, like all other days when I was with them, like there was a glass wall separating me and them. Like I showed up feeling alone with a family that there was no reason for me to feel that sense of aloneness. Um, you know, and here's the thing is that we, um, we cannot live alone with our pressing problems, right? Can't live alone with my pressing problems. I need to quit living by ourselves with those tormenting ghosts of yesterday 
and it feels more urgent than ever. We have to talk to someone about them. So, you know, I was cut off from other people. We lived, I lived in isolation. And in step five, we're gonna get entirely honest with another human. In fact, it's urgent that we quit living cut off from others, which is why sponsors usually suggest to sponsees that they make those outreach calls. You know, it's so that you are in the practice of having a sense of community with our fellowship. Bottom of page 55 says, we searched for an easier way, which is usually consists of the general and fairly painless admission that when drinking, we were sometimes bad actors. Then for good measure, we add dramatic descriptions of that part of our drinking behavior, which our friends probably know about anyway. Right. So it's not uncommon for people to say things like, and I hear this a lot. Oh, when I was in the food, I was a mess. When I was in the food, I stole candy, you know, or I threw out things that my family wanted to eat because I couldn't handle having it around the house. Like I name the most visibly, you know, apparent, there's no skeleton in the closet. Like who here hasn't done that? right? There's nothing deep and dark about that one. Um, you know, but of the things which really bother and burn us, we say nothing, right? Those are like, Shh, don't talk about. Certain distressing or humiliating memories, we tell ourselves ought not to be shared with anyone. These will remain our secret. Not a soul must ever know. We hope they'll go to the grave with us. So our fifth step is not merely an account of the harm we did in direct relation to the food. That is not what the fifth step is, where I just talk about the awful things I did with the food. Rather, it's the things that had almost nothing to do with the food itself. Those are the real issues for me. You know, the really painful, embarrassing events are the ones that need to be shared. Those are the ones that we have to bring out. Why? Why do we have to share those? Because holding back on step five will cause us to eat. It's a guarantee. Page 56 says some people are unable to stay sober at all and others will relapse periodically until they really clean house. If you carry the load alone, you'll suffer irritability, anxiety, or remorse and depression. So we're given a warning here. If you're gonna try to walk around with those skeletons in the closet and not share it with anybody, you're gonna have irritability, anxiety, remorse, and depression, right? And we know that the way that we experience irritations, anxieties, regrets, and depression, for me, when I feel those things, I experience them as hunger. That's part of what it means to be a compulsive overeater. I can't rely on hungry feelings to actually tell me, am I legitimately hungry or I mean, sometimes you are, right? Sometimes we are, but sometimes it's really, I'm irritated, I'm anxious, I have regret and I feel depressed. And I experience that as hunger. 
Um, you know, and so it's not the circumstances that attribute to these irritations. That's not what attributes to the irritations. It's the way that we experience the irritations. It's our experience of them, right? Because you could take the same circumstances and in a recovered state, I'm like, yeah, that's annoying. But when I'm like, you know, not spiritually fit, that same thing is like, ah, it's got like a lot of weight to it, right? So it's not the circumstances, it's the way that we experience our circumstances. You know, and while we know today that our problems are not actually our bosses or our mother-in-laws or our spouses, it is our reactions and responses to our bosses, to our mother-in-laws and to our spouses. In order to get a new way to respond and react, we need a fifth step. Because the fifth step tells us that we're gonna get a new attitude. That's what this step is about. I say it's an attitude adjustment. That's what the fifth step is. I'm gonna get myself a better attitude. Um, you know, and in order to get a new way to respond and react, I need that new attitude. We will be living without a fifth step. We will be living in a state where the only relief will come in the form of the food. That's what happens. If we don't do a fifth step, we will succumb to the desire. It's a guarantee. Bottom of page 56 to 57 says, most of us would declare that without a fearless admission of our defects to another human being, we could not stay sober. It seems plain that the grace of God will not enter to expel our destructive obsessions until we are willing to try this. So my willingness is what allows the grace of God to enter. It's really what it says here. And my willingness to expel my destructive obsessions, my willingness to, to be honest, to share it all, that's what's required for God to expel the desire to eat. And this is exactly what most of us came here for. I needed God to expel, to force out, right? To send away from my midst the destructive obsession that I had with food. Didn't need a better food plan. Food plans don't remove the obsession. They might remove the allergy from your body but the obsession does not get driven out by being stone cold abstinent, by just our food sobriety. You know, I have to tell you, I didn't come looking for new friends, right? Or for something to do on a Thursday night, right? That wasn't my initial purpose. It wasn't like, hmm, I don't really have anything to do tonight. Let me, let me come and darken the doors of Overeaters Anonymous. It was, I came because I could not keep myself from destroying myself. That's why I came. Um, and in my earlier times in OA, I did not fearlessly admit anything. I blamed, I judged, I complained. And you know what I did? I ate. 
right? Those behaviors kept me eating. So number two, step five, gives us kinship with man. We get connecting, connection with man. Page 57 says, what are we likely to receive from step five? Well, for one thing, we shall get rid of that terrible sense of isolation we've always had. Almost without exception, alcoholics are tortured by loneliness. Even before our drinking got bad and people began to cut us off, nearly all of us suffered the feeling that we didn't quite belong. Either we were shy or we were apt to be noisy, craving attention and companionship that we never knew. There was a mysterious barrier, right? And when I read that, when I read that in the 12 and 12, it's like, I mean, I, I, I'm like, huh, this is written for me. That's what I've been experiencing all my life. I remember feeling that way as a really little girl, you know, and I experienced it as feeling large. And I look back at pictures and I'm like, I wasn't, but that was, it was like, I didn't fit in. I didn't fit in my skin and I didn't fit in spaces and places, or I felt insignificant, right? Or I felt like I needed to be heard, right? And you must hear me. Um, you know, so the point, this point always brings me, you know, to thinking back to something that I used to say. I used to say this, um, I just can't do this. I used to say that all the time. I just can't do this. I, I can't, I can't get this. And I wondered why it was that I couldn't get it on my, I was like, I can't do this. I can't get this. And, you know, it's because we were never meant to do it on our own, right? We didn't get this on our own because we're not supposed to do this on our own. Um, and this spiritual program of action is not, like I said, it's not an independent course study. It's meant to be done together. The loneliness, the isolation is a common characteristic that so many of us have lived with. I could be in a crowd and feel alone, right? I have a huge family, people who genuinely love me. And I walked around feeling like I never got enough attention, like I never got enough. And I always felt different and I always felt alone. And, you know, I would either quietly pout or internally criticize, or I was overly dramatic and hijacked the conversation. And still I felt left out and alone. And I know that this is not the reality, but it was the way I experienced the reality. Because my siblings tell an entirely different story about the way that our family worked. They say, I'm the baby. And they say that I was constantly getting everybody's attention, that everybody was constantly paying attention to me. And that, you know, the rules never applied to me, that I got away with murder. And, you know, so their story and mine, they don't match up. I would tell you, that I was always left out, that I was always alone, that no one loved, you know, no one paid attention to me. Um, and so the step, the fifth step is not about finding where those people did anything to me, 
It's really about our own experience, the way that we experienced it. Okay, number three, step five gives us the ability to be our authentic selves. Page 57, halfway through the first paragraph, it says, it was as if we were actors on a stage, suddenly realizing that we did not know a single line of our parts. Holy smokes, have I felt that way before. Like, like why don't I know how to do what it seems like everyone else in the world knows how to do? Like there was somehow a secret rule book that I never got. And, and it was like, you know, um, I, could, I didn't know how to just be. You know, there's um, another common feeling that many of us have had, and it's the feeling as if we're imposters, as if we're faking it, you know, faking our way through life. I often felt like the rest of the world got a manual for living, and I somehow was overlooked and I just never got it. And almost like, you know, I would say it's almost like missing two weeks of a math class. And then trying to figure out what's going on. I always I felt like that often with my life. Like I missed something and now I was always playing catch up. And not only was I trying to play catch up, I was trying to pretend that I didn't miss anything, right? Like, so I was not only feeling inadequate, but I was trying to prove to you that I'm really competent. Like I know what I'm doing. Um, you know, and so I spent so much of my life trying to convince others that I was somewhat better than I actually believed myself to be, right? I had poor self-esteem and it took everything to try to convince you that I was good, that I, that I was worthy. Um, like I would say I was the president of the public relations for Melissa. That was my job. I'm president of the PR firm for me. And yet in my heart, I felt like I had the worst product in the world. Like I was trying to sell you this really defective product. Um, and for, my, for me, my fifth step was where I finally got honest. I stopped worrying so much about my reputation and started looking at my integrity. And I think that's the important piece about step five, that we are willing to let go of our reputation and instead we're willing to work on having integrity. And I saw that there were things about me that truly needed to change, not things about my family, but things about me that needed changing. Um, you know, I have to tell you, like, I've known all my life that stealing was wrong. I've grown up with parents that taught me clearly we knew right from wrong. And I never, I didn't like thinking that I took things. It wasn't like I liked that aspect of me. I wanted to live a certain way. And yet I was so enslaved by the food that I just could not live in agreement with my own moral code, right? I had a set of morals and I could not exercise enough will to live in agreement with those morals. You know, I would steal candy from colleagues. I would take it from my kids. I wanted to be a loving and caring friend. And yet I would cancel on friends all the time. If I felt fat, I'm not going. Or when I couldn't find anything that fit, I'm not going. Or if I wanted to stay home and eat instead, I'm not going. Or if I didn't think that 
I was going to be able to go and not eat. I wasn't going like I was, I, and I never gave anybody notice. Um, you know, one of the most painful things that I, that I've done is, um, I missed a dear friend's funeral. We had a really close friend, uh, my husband and myself. And um, I didn't go to her funeral because I put on a lot of weight and I didn't want, I didn't want her siblings to see how heavy I'd gotten. Like no thought about them and their grief and that maybe my job was to actually console them, right? Um, but instead, I didn't want them to see me. I was so fixated on myself. Um, you know, and in my heart, I was a caring and confident, you know, caring, confident person. I was someone that was trustworthy. I could be a confidant for somebody. And yet, you know, I've also shared this with you guys that I sat across from a table from a dear friend whose marriage was ending and she was crying about the end of her marriage. And the only thing I could focus on was the bread on the table, right? Um, and, you know, I wanted to care. I actually really wanted to care um, and I couldn't because the food insisted that I care more about it than anything else. And why did the food have that ownership over me? Because I was walking around with resentments, fears, dishonesty, and harms that I didn't want anybody to know about, right? And so instead, my mind locks in on food. Um, you know, and I was terrified that if somebody could read my mind, they would be horrified by what a liar I was. Like, I remember thinking, um, Oh my gosh, if anybody knew how to read minds, I'm in real trouble because they're going to say this is all fake. I'm a fake. Um, you know, bottom of page 57 says step five was the answer. It was the beginning of true kinship with man and God. Okay, number four, step five gives us forgiveness for ourselves and others. Page 57 through 58 says this vital step was also the means by which we began to get the feeling that we could be forgiven no matter what we had thought or done. I think that's just beautiful that we get this feeling like, like we actually can be forgiven. Often it was while working on this step with our sponsors or spiritual advisors that we first felt truly able to forgive ourselves, to forgive others no matter how deeply we felt they had wronged us. When we resolutely tackled step five, that we inwardly knew we'd be able to receive forgiveness and give it. And I'm gonna come back to that point in a moment, this idea of really being able to receive forgiveness and then being able to give it. Okay, so step five, number five, gives us humility. And I just, I love the definition of humility in the AA 12 and 12, because it defines humility like this on page 58. It says, humility, a word often misunderstood. To those who have made progress in AA, it amounts to a clear 
recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we could be. Just think that's a great definition of what it means to have humility. So in step five, we share our inventories so that we can get help identifying our defects. Not so we feel like worthless pieces of trash, right? Um, but so that we can strive to be who God intended us to be. Like first we gotta get honest about the stock and trade. First I gotta know what it is I've got. Then I can have this sincere desire to improve, to be better. Page 59 says, hence, it was most evident that a solitary self-appraisal and the admission of our defects based upon that alone wouldn't be nearly enough. We'd have to have outside help if we were to surely to know and admit the truth about ourselves. The help of God and another human being. The big book warns that we find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. So in the big book, it says this, um, you know, we find a solitary appraisal insufficient. And on page 60, it says, until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we have so long hidden, our willingness to clean house is still largely theoretical, right? Theoretical. So we're just kind of talking about the idea until we actually sit down and do it. When we are honest with another person, it confirms that we have been honest with ourselves and with God. It's like we need that third person. We need the other person there with us. You know, the specific sentence I would say about self-appraisal being insufficient, this solitary self-appraisal insufficient, I think it's worth looking at closely. Um, as it really explains why another person is needed and not just the addict and God, right? And I think about, I heard this analogy before about you call an appraiser in when you want to sell your house because you have no clue what the value of your house is, right? Or when you have a piece of jewelry, right? You call an appraiser in to look at it and tell you what it's actually worth because you really don't know. And I think about this like my house, right? Um, you know, if I needed to have it appraised, I can't do it on my own because I won't be able to discern what's really got value and what has sentiment, right? What just has a feeling of value and what truly has value. And I discern what's really got value. Um, I need another person outside of myself and my family. Someone unaffected, it says, but who knows what I'm trying to do, which in this case, I'm trying to have my defects identified so I can allow God to remove them. So I might give value to something that no longer has good purpose anymore, right? If done on my own, I'm gonna give value to something that really has outlived its usefulness. Um, and in my house, I would think about it like this. I might look at my bathroom right? I, one of my bathrooms upstairs, the kid's bathroom. And I recall the days that I bathed my kids in the tub, right? I go in there and there's sentiment. I remember that the tub and, you know, like having to adjust the water and it was always iffy, the hot and cold, but there's a sentiment there, 
it, it has value to me. You know, an appraiser comes in and says, um, the tile is outdated. It is so like, you know, 1970 harvest gold and it's chipped, right? And your plumbing's not so great either. So they would be able to help me see the things that need to change, the things that are necessary. And that's how it is with my inventory. So I might have a lot of stories, a lot of reasons, a lot of justifications that support my resentments, that support my selfishness, that support my fears, that support my dishonesty. And another person who really understands how these things are killing me and are causing me to eat will be able to point this out without supporting the lies that I tell myself as to why I'm entitled to feel that way, right? Another person can come in and just say, yeah, no, this is not, this is not, this is not good, right? This is not, this is not healthy. Page 60 says, it gives us a warning. We're warned here on page 60, going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous, right? It is worth noting that people of very high spiritual development almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance they feel they have received from God. And this carries us throughout recovery. In the beginning, you know, it's suggested that a sponsor discusses decisions with their sponsor. They've got a big decision. It's like, you really ought to discuss this with a sponsor. And it's something that we continue to practice still today. You know, many of us share our nightly reviews. We share inventories. We have, you know, some people have two-way prayer partners so that when they get some indication of what they believe God is communicating to them, they have another person to say, yeah, that sounds reasonable or I don't know that that seems a little, you know, extreme. Um, and I know, you know, I know that there's 10 step trains and rotational prayer partners. Um, but I personally, and I listen, if that's a practice that works for you, that's awesome. I think whatever, you know, you find, I'm just going to share my own experience is that I like the directions given here about going to a friend or an advisor. I want to run my inspired notions with someone who knows me well, right? Who understands my patterns or behaviors and who has a full working knowledge of my defects. We are also given further information about who we should confide in. And I know, like, I feel like this with sponsors and sponsees, like we know each other's story. So when they, when a sponsee says, do you think I should say X, Y, and Z to my husband? We, it's not like we're in the business of advising, but we know the whole story with these people. We've been walking the walk with them a long time. Or should I say this to my friend? Or, you know, I want to tell my boss X, Y, and Z, or I had a problem with my colleague today and I think I ought to do this. If we've got friends and fellows that we have been consistently running things by, they might be able to tell us that is not a great idea. <laughs> or that sounds, yeah, it sounds like it's aligned with what you're working on, right? Um, page 61 says, we shall want to speak with someone who is experienced 
who not only has stayed dry, but has been able to surmount other serious difficulties. Difficulties perhaps like our own. You know, and page 62 says, before long, your listener may well tell a story or two about himself, which will place you even more at ease. So it's pretty clear that you want someone with sobriety when you're going to give your fifth step. You don't want someone who's binging currently. You know, not that, listen, I have loads of people in my life that I used to share things with. Um, that's very different from a fifth step because those people will often, if they were part of my like friend group, they often had this direction that they needed to agree with me, right? They were, and especially if they're not, if they're not living in sobriety, if they're not like living in recovery, they don't necessarily have a firm understanding of integrity with our relations. So they might agree with me and not really agree with me anyway, right? But just say it because, you know, I used to agree with lots of people because I thought it would make them like me. And then I wouldn't be a great imposter, right? If I felt comfortable with them. So, you know, it's helpful if there are some shared experiences. I, I think it is very helpful when we find fellows that we have some similarities in our experiences. Um, and, you know, why? So the sponsor can offer their own personal examples, how they walked through this, how they surmounted their difficulties. And this is why, you know, I believe it is crucial that there's a friendship between a sponsor and a sponsee. It says that. It says that in the book, you know, in the chapter working with others, it says that we're friends. It says the word friends 16 times. It's not a mistake. So, you know, in my experience with step five is both the sponsee and sponsor. Um, what I found is that there's a pattern that begins to emerge. It's almost as if we each have one or two main themes that run throughout our whole lives. You know, and every one of my resentments and fears begins to look the same. You know, it's, it's just that I've been casting new people in the roles. And I'd say it's almost like binge watching Law and Order. If you've ever binge watched Law and Order, about the fourth episode in, you know the story. It's the same story, right? They just cast a new set of characters. It's the new set of characters that's just making the rotation. And that's what it is in my, in my inventory. I got the same, I got the same three stories. I've been telling it to myself from the time I was a little girl. I just, sometimes I cast my boss in the role of the villain. Sometimes that my mother was the villain. Sometimes my husband was, sometimes my neighbor, right? But in the stories that I tell, I'm always the victim. And it's the same story, just reenacted with a different set of characters. Um, and, you know, and I, you know, and um, an experienced guide who has lived these situations can see the patterns, especially if they are building a rapport together. And there's a trusting bond that can gently but firmly move the fellow from self-pity or self-righteous indignation towards taking responsibility, right? That's what we need to do. We actually have to assume responsibility. Maybe not 
for the situation, but for the way that we experienced the situation. That is ours and ours alone. Our, our way that we experience it. Step six, uh, I'm sorry, number six, step five, gives us peace of mind and serenity. Page 62 says, the damned up emotions of years break out of their confinement and miraculously vanish as soon as they are exposed. As the pain subsides, healing, tranquility takes place. And when humility and serenity are so combined, something else of great moment is apt to occur. And what is it that actually occurs? Well, here's the next promise, number seven. Step five gives us a connection with our higher power. And we experience feeling the presence of God. Page 62, many an AA, once agnostic or atheist, tells us that it was during this stage of step five that he first actually felt the presence of God. And even those who had faith already often become conscious of God as they never were before. So they may have had faith, they may have had a belief, but now we begin to have a consciousness and awareness. And, you know, my own experience with step five um, is that I had a particular part of my story. Um, and I, you know, I've um, experienced some really, some really tragic losses in my life. Um, like, like most of us, right? Um, it wasn't personal to me, but I was experiencing it like life had done me dirty. Like I was screwed and it wasn't fair. Um, and I was really angry about my losses. And I was really angry at the people in my life who I- Maria Elena is here tomorrow, period. So if you cook tonight. Who I really felt um, had not shown up for me when I was going through those painful times. I had like a list of people who did not show up for me. But the truth is, is that I had a lot of guilt about my own part, about my own responsibility in some of these personal tragedies. And I felt that there were things that I did that may have caused some of these losses um, and things that I felt when it was happening. And I just wouldn't ever say it out loud. Like I just couldn't say it out loud. And what happened to me was that I reached a point where I just had to be honest and I had to share. I finally just had to share the whole painful story. And I sat upstairs in the sanctuary. There's a church in Cornwall, like the real in-person live Cornwall meeting. There's, it's in a church in the basement. And there's a church, you know, the sanctuary upstairs. And um, I had done a fourth step and I had actually given my fifth step over to my sponsor. But the part where it says to you sit in quiet meditation, asking yourself if there's anything that you've left out. I couldn't sit quiet with myself because I realized I hadn't told the whole story. So I told her, I was like, I have to talk to you about something. And we sat together in that sanctuary um, and I finally told the whole story. Like 
what I believed it was, my experience of, I just opened up completely. And I said out loud, like the great burdens of shame that I had been dragging around. I've been dragging these burdens of embarrassment, shame, remorse, guilt. And I finally, I just said it. And, you know, I had a relationship with my sponsor. I still do, right? And she looked at me with the most loving, compassionate eyes. Like we sat right across from each other. By the way, I don't do step fives with people over the phone. If possible, I do them in person. And if I can't do them in person, I do them via Zoom. Like, so that I can see the people. Because when she looked at me with the most um, loving eyes, I knew, I knew she wasn't God, but I felt, I felt like God's presence there. And I felt God looking at me through her. Like, I just felt like God was in the room with us. And when she reassured me that I was forgiven, I felt like God used her to deliver me that message. Um, I still, when I talk about it, I can feel it because I remember when she said, you know, you are forgiven. And I felt like God just told me right from her mouth. And my life has never been the same since. That was my experience. Never been the same since. The, the entire world looked different from that day forward. Um, I remember I walked outside of that church and I looked up at the trees in the sky and the trees against the blue sky, they looked like sharp and distinct. It was truly like I just got glasses, like everything just looked different. And um, you know what happened? I, I also stopped feeling angry at all those people that I had believed hadn't shown up for me because in that moment, God revealed the whole truth to me. God opened my eyes, not just to myself, but I saw that what I was walking around believing wasn't true. It wasn't true. You know, the people who I believe didn't call me enough or say the right things when, when I experienced that pain. In fact, they did the very best they could. They did everything they could. You know, what I found is that when someone is grieving hard, it's uncomfortable to be around them. And so the people that seemed to be avoiding me, it was because they were uncomfortable seeing me in so much pain. It wasn't that they didn't care about me, but my pain was, was, was painful for them too. Um, you know, I, I clearly remembered, you know, how, um, you know, like my loss was we lost a child. We lost a child. We lived a day and died. And my siblings um, that I was mad at, I forgot, they arranged the entire funeral. They took care of everything. I just showed up. Like, and somehow in my sadness of feeling abandoned by them, I never remembered that. I, it was like it didn't exist, but I never paid for the funeral. I never made any phone calls to arrange it. They took care of the whole thing. Um, I had friends that showed up at my house and filled my fridge with food. You know, I had a friend who um, would come and bathe my daughter for me because I just couldn't, I couldn't like get my act together. She would come and cut my daughter's nails because I just 
couldn't do it. And my husband, I felt, you know, he wasn't talking about it enough. I felt very alone from him too. I was very resentful and it was hard for him. He didn't know what to say to me. And he felt he had this message in his brain that he had to be strong and he couldn't. And it was hard for him to talk to me about it. But all those friends that I was mad at, my husband was crying to them. They were there for him, you know? So um, I knew at that point, not only was I seeing the truth, I knew I was never gonna have to use food the same way anymore. Um, I felt the nearness of my creator. The incredible thing for me is that um, as I experienced the same miracle for myself, whenever I have the fortune and the privilege and the honor to sit across from someone and they tell their truth, like I actually get to re-experience this miracle like alongside them. Um, and um, I think I was getting so emotional, but with that, I'll pass. Thanks.